This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Zenon Capron, founder and managing director of Capron Asia in a two-part conversation on fintech in Asia. In the first part, we focus exclusively on China and how the fintech space is evolving. Hi, Zenon. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me back. You're now back in Shanghai. I come back to Singapore soon? Yeah, because Chinese New Year is about a week off. So I'll be traveling actually to Estonia for a week for a conference and then coming down to Singapore. Good to have you here. And we have Zenon Capron, founder of and director of Capron Asia and China FinTech. And of course, he is all things FinTech, not just with China, I think with Asia Pacific these days. Since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Yes, I think you know the fintech conversation continues, and I think there has been a realization within the financial industry about where new technology like AI, blockchain, distributed ledger technology, all, all of these things that banks have been talking about for many years, they've started to realize it a little bit more. And I think 2018 will be an interesting year, especially around blockchain, because that's probably the one technology that the financial industry has been talking about for many years, but has really yet to see the practical applications. And so I think with all of the work that's been done over the past couple of years, 2018 will be really the year that some of these technologies become reality or don't become reality for the banks across Asia. So a lot of our focus has been there. And then obviously the cryptocurrency discussion has changed a bit. And certainly since we last talked, ICOs have come onto the stage. And so it's been interesting to be seeing what's happened around that and then and the Bitcoin itself and kind of what Bitcoin is used for. So those have been really our focus areas at Capron Asia and China FinTech. So I have decided to break down today's topic of conversation into two parts. One is probably the FinTech in China because as the ecosystem itself, it separates itself from the rest of the world. I'm going to start off by asking you first is what are the key developments in fintech specific to China in the following verticals? So I'll start off with digital payments and banking services. Yeah, so I think the, the interesting thing around digital payments is two things. I mean, first of all, the regulation that the government has put in place around mobile payments. So that was kind of over the course of last year. And the launch of the Wang Lian platform, which launched in April, May last year, but will be required for all digital payment providers by the end of this year. And so really what Wang Lian is, effectively, you can think about it like a China union pay for mobile payments and online payments. So traditionally, Alipay and Tencent had created their own payment channels for the Alipay and the WeChat Pay platform, meaning that they Alipay went to all the banks around China, opened up bank accounts with them, and then using its own systems is able to deposit and withdraw payments from each of those bank accounts. So the challenge for that for the government is that those transactions aren't very transparent because they happen on Alipay's network. If Chinese Pay makes a card transaction, the government can see details about that transaction because it's running across the China Union Pay network that is partially government controlled or or mostly government controlled. So this Wang Lian platform essentially by the end of 2018 will require all of the mobile payment providers, predominantly Alipay and WeChat Pay, to route their transactions through this platform. And so then the government will have more access to the transaction information, the data that's going across those platforms. 
So that's a really interesting development. I guess it's something that we could have expected because of the volume of payments that are going across these platforms. It's just unthinkable to believe that the government would not have purview into what was happening on some of these payment platforms. And, and you know, in the past, we've heard of Alipay in Macau being used for moving money illegally abroad. And so that insight that the government will get into that will be interesting how that changes the market. And I think really when, when you look at the standardization of QR codes as well, so we're starting to see at a global level and in China launch of standardized QR codes, I think we're getting to the point that we'll have interoperability between some of these payment platforms. So in other words, you'll, you'll be able to go to a merchant that accepts WeChat Pay and you'll be able to use your China Union Pay mobile wallet or you'll be able to go to a China Union Pay merchant and use your Alipay wallet. And I think we're getting to that point and the government is kind of putting those, those things in place because China Union Pay and the banks have largely been left out of this mobile transition, this really innovation that's happened around mobile payments. And so th- this is a way for them to get back into the game. So I think when we look at payments in general, I think the, the launch of Wang Lian and these interoperable QR codes are really some of the things certainly that we've been watching in China that, that could potentially change the mobile payments market in 2008. There's one interesting piece I would like to ask you is regarding those funds that runs within N Financial and also in WeChat as well, like Yue Bao, for example. I, I recall reading in Reuters that they actually, the government now requests them to have at least 50% of reserves instead of the 20% reserves. Yeah, that's correct. So as you pointed out, I mean, the government regulation is starting to push, well, require these platforms to save money, more of the money in reserve. And so basically what would happen is if an individual moved money onto the platform and they left it in their Alipay wallet or their WeChat wallet, the providers, so in financial or Tencent, would invest that in other products, much like a bank would do. Right. So you deposit money at the bank and the bank uses your money to lend out to other people. Now, the, the amount that was actually stored in the Alibank wallet or the WeChat wallet is still relatively small. And that sounds strange when the amount of money that's going across these platforms is so large. But the reason why it's so small is because individuals typically would move it on to a UML platform or another money market or wealth management product within that and invest on their own behalf. So certainly the having more of the money in reserves and not investing it will hurt the revenue that the and financial and Tencent got from the money that was just sitting sitting there in the digital wallets. But it it is a shift. Again, you know, it's expected and it kind of indicates the government's approach to many of these platforms. I mean, they're, they're willing to let them grow and innovate and change the financial services market. But at the same time, they want to protect the financial industry and the rights of the individuals. You know, if and Financial or Tencent had invested the user's money in a product that all of a sudden exploded, those users wouldn't have the money left or the, you know, and Financial would have to pay them back from other sources. And that's risky. And so that's really the government's focus is to kind of prevent that risk and, and help the individuals to ensure that they don't lose their money when they're using these platforms. Just one question before we move to the next vertical. Given that you have Wang Lian now that actually regulates the digital payments and also imposing these 50% reserves, do you see that the traditional banks are able to come into the digital space and compete with Alipay and Tenpay? basically denting their ambitions to become really the one platform provider? 
Yeah, so I think clearly with Wang Lian and the QR code interoperability, that is part of the push uh, because, as you mentioned, the banks have largely been left out of this uh, mobile payment revolution and, and, and really haven't had a value proposition for individuals. So the new UnionPay mobile app works with all of the bank, obviously. So that's an opportunity for the banks to get more involved by using that union pay platform. And when the QR codes eventually, if they do become interoperable, that is another opportunity for them. The challenge still remains, though, the usability of these platforms. I mean, ICBC has an e-commerce platform that you can access on their website, but ICBC at the end of the day is a bank. And when the market looks at ICBC, they look at them like a bank. The benefit that Ant Financial and Alibaba and Tencent have is that they are technology companies. So the market is kind of expecting them to do these moonshot activities where they, you know, whether that be setting up a Hema offline retail store here in Shanghai, or last weekend, there was a WeChat Tencent pop-up store in one of the malls here in Shanghai where you could buy Tencent branded goods. The banks aren't in a position to be able to do that because they're measured by return on equity, return on assets, you know, measurements that technology companies aren't being held to all the time. Uh, so that's still going to be the challenge is even if you have access and better access to the individuals that are using, are they going to be using a China Union Pay app versus a WeChat or an Alipay? Because they're in WeChat all the time. They're in Alipay all the time. What's going to incentivize them to use one of these other platforms? So even though they do have more access to the market, that still remains the challenge is how they how they're going to be able to entice the consumers to come over to their platforms. Let's shift gears a bit. Coming to the P2P lending, I understand that there are a couple of companies might be thinking about going IPO this year. Where are we with P2P lending? Are there new regulations that have come in to also shape this industry as well? Well, I think the, the implementation of the regulations that the government put out just over a year and a half ago have really kind of narrowed down the market. And I think it's clear that the strong have survived, but there were quite a few platforms that went by the wayside as those regulations started to take hold. I think in general, consumer finance in China has continued to grow very rapidly. When you look at credit card usage, when you look at peer-to-peer lending loans, when you look at consumer finance platforms, the Chinese consumer has really gotten an appetite for credit in China. And this is all being helped by the fact that we have better credit rating platforms now, many third-party credit rating platforms that have been developed either by the P2P companies or by external parties that give us a better view on what the Chinese consumer's credit rating and you know, quality as a borrower is. And so really consumer finance and peer-to-peer lending, we've seen listings from these companies, IPOs from these companies in, in very short periods of time. And some of these have been positive and some have struggled once they've come out to the market. And Shudian is a good example that listed and then the consumer finance regulations came into play and they've struggled a bit, the price, at least on the market, or Shudian. And I think that's kind of similar for many of the companies as well. But that being said, the market seems to have an appetite for these consumer finance and P2P lending companies. And, you know, we've seen the intentions of Lufax and to a lesser extent, Dianrong, probably in the next couple of years will both be listed as well. And with some of the management changes at Dianrong late last year, it's clear they're kind of moving in that direction by getting the organization aligned and ready for the IPO. It's still a bit of a surprise to me that so many of these platforms are able to list when you consider you know, how many US, as an example, platforms are listed. But then again, China is a much bigger market. There may be 
viability for this many fintech companies that are focused on consumer lending and peer-to-peer lending to list overseas. Then, of course, the last vertical is cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. I wanted to separate it out because I think cryptocurrency refers to those things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and altcoins trading exchanges. And of course, with China banning exchanges and ICOs. So where is that going actually in China now? Yes, the banning of the Bitcoin exchanges kind of surprised us a little bit. I mean, I think when we looked last year at the initial regulation in kind of April that basically required exchanges to provide more KYC on the customers. So basically to understand and know your customer regulations that required these exchanges to collect a lot more information about the individuals that you're using in the platforms. And so we, we thought that that was going to be sufficient for the government and they were going to be happy with it. What really threw a wrench into the works was the ICOs. And I think it was something that the government really didn't expect it to come into play and become such a big part of the China story so quickly. And we'll talk about ICOs, I'm sure, later. But fundamentally, they introduce a lot of risk into the market and they only benefit a certain number of people. Going back again to the government's focus is to really protect the Chinese individuals in the financial industry. When you have a tool like an ICO that has a lot of risk, but doesn't necessarily have a lot of return or may result in people losing all of their money, the government wants to kind of shut those activities down. And so really the, the Bitcoin exchanges to a certain extent were an unfortunate bystander in the ICO race because that those individuals for buying the ICOs would need to buy Bitcoin or Ether. They would come from those platforms. The government needed to shut down the Bitcoin exchanges to prevent people from accessing the, the cryptocurrency and, and to be able to invest into these exchanges. Now, what's happened since then is the banning of mining and over-the-counter Bitcoin exchange as well. And so that's that's really, the government clearly wants cryptocurrencies out of the country. Some people have indicated that that's because they're planning their own digital currency, which we believe that they are, but probably not for the next couple of years, at least. It'll be more of a longer term program. But at the same time, they want to take that risk out of the market because similar to Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin is a very elegant solution to a problem that doesn't really exist in China. The payment system is very robust. Individuals have a number of different choices of where to invest their money. But Bitcoin is risky for financial industries, not just in China, but globally and cryptocurrencies as well. And so the government seems to have taken a stand that they'd rather inconvenience the few million people that were trading cryptocurrencies in China by banning them altogether rather than risking it growing into a more systemic potential risk for the industry. Instead of trying to look at the cryptocurrency markets, which I think the Chinese is probably right in trying to stop more and more retail investors getting into investing in that. What about the blockchain technology with business models that, are, that differ from the traditional kind of uh, cryptocurrencies landscape? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny to hear you describe cryptocurrencies as traditional, but I guess that's the way that we've gotten in this market is that cryptocurrencies are here to stay and <laughs> no technology. But yeah, I think, and that's one of the things that many people have speculated on. I, I think with the banning of the cryptocurrency exchanges, there's been a lot of cryptocurrency talent that has left China. So many of the exchanges have set up internationally. The teams have moved to places like Japan, where exchanges are much more regulated. Cryptocurrency is a little bit more, the government is a little bit more open for cryptocurrency and, and South Korea and Hong Kong and other jurisdictions. So... Uh, 
there's speculation that's that kind of brain drain that's happened because of the regulation will impact the blockchain space. And certainly, you know, it's it's almost difficult for us to think back to two years ago when blockchains were completely separate from cryptocurrencies. It just seems that with the prevalence of ICOs that blockchain and cryptocurrency are in, inextricably linked. But there are many platforms in China that are pushing blockchain solutions that are completely not related to cryptocurrencies. And, and when certainly when you look at companies like R3 or Digital Asset Holdings, that's something that we see internationally as well. I mean, they're not focused on cryptocurrency, they're focused on the application of blockchain solutions in the corporate space or in the commercial space. So the government in China still sees blockchain as a positive. And it was something that was mentioned around the time of the government's new five-year plan, as was AI and machine learning. So the government clearly recognizes that these technologies have a play in China. And that's going to be one of the challenges going forward is, is how do you continue to encourage that kind of innovation, but not stifle it. And certainly cryptocurrency have been stifled in China because of the regulation. But the government has tried to tread that line where blockchain is still something that they see has potential in China. And certainly when you look not just at the financial industry, but across a number of industries, whether that be trade or healthcare or finance, the blockchain technology really has potential in those markets, especially in China, where systems are not necessarily that technology developed or you know, may face organizational or operational challenges that a distributed ledger could help solve. So uh, I think it'll be a challenge for the government going forward because you know, effectively all of those blockchain projects that relied on an ICO for funding are now no longer possible. But you know, will they be able to continue going forward is, is, is a good question, especially when a lot of that talent has moved to other countries. So all the major three exchange, BTC China, OKCoin, OK Huobi, they are now already relocated into other parts of the world but still allowing trading of currencies. Am I right to say that? Yeah, that's correct. So they don't, in most cases, they try to avoid taking Chinese consumers. And in fact, we may see these exchanges blocked by the Great Firewall within the next couple of months. That's what the government has indicated that they're going to do. But they are operating overseas. So the individuals and the exchanges both have moved abroad. And even some of the new exchanges like Binance, uh, Binance was set up by a gentleman, CZ, who used to be the CTO for OKCoin and then went off on his own. And, and he largely operates outside of China, as does most of the team. Uh, so, and they're one of the more recently successful cryptocurrency exchanges. So a, a lot of this talent and a lot of the people have just decided to open up shop internationally, either under the same brand or a slightly different brand to kind of clear the air and make sure there's no tying into the exchanges here in China. But it's difficult to shed a tear for these exchanges because they've done phenomenally well over the past three or four years. You know, the Chinese exchanges, the three that you mentioned, were the largest in the world at one point. And so they've made a tremendous amount of money behind that. And hopefully, you know, between that and the Bitcoin price increasing so much, as well as all of the other cryptocurrencies, they've invested well and they've done well. So, you know, even if it doesn't work out, with them being international platforms, the founders and the teams, I think, have still done reasonably well from the, the cryptocurrency boom that we've seen. 
one more point that I would like to ask is regarding Bitmain because Bitmain is the largest manufacturer of Bitcoin mining equipment in the world. I think they have at least 7 to 80% market share, very similar to DJI, which has 70 to 80% of the consumer drone market. So with all these rules that are stopping miners from able to do mining in China, where will they be? I mean, would that actually dent them or would they just move them out of China as well? Well, certainly the regulation or the, as far as we're aware, what the government has said is that they are encouraging provincial governments and city governments to move miners out of the country. For certain, this is kind of a challenge. I mean, the discussion about Bitcoin mining is a lot down to the energy usage, and it's clear that that's huge. And in China, there's a lot of energy that comes from coal, burning coal. And so when you're doing Bitcoin mining and you're using coal-based energy, that's very inefficient, and it goes completely against the government's push to clean the air in China. But what we had heard is from many of these mines were located near hydroelectric power. And so hydroelectric power is much cleaner, obviously. And, and hydroelectric power is challenging because the, the water is obviously flowing 24 hours a day. But the electricity demand isn't necessarily that great throughout the day. And so what these Bitcoin mines provided for some of those hydroelectric plants, not just here in China, but globally, is more sustained demand. So during those down hours when the, the water is still flowing, but the demand for electricity from individuals and companies isn't that great. So in the evenings or at night, the Bitcoin mining operations could leverage that electricity during that time and still buy it from the power plants. So in many cases, these power plants are probably, and the provincial governments are probably loath to give up the Bitcoin mining because they provide a source of revenue where they may not have had. And in the case of many of these hydroelectric plants in China, the efficiency and the economic, you know, the profitability of some of these plants was called, really called into question. So, you know, the government has pushed these provincial governments to move the Bitcoin mining out of China. But at the same time, it's a, it's a drop in a revenue source for them. But for companies like Bitmain, they're incredibly profitable companies, both from their hardware business and from their mining operations. So again, you know, it's another, it's another entity within this cryptocurrency ecosystem that it's difficult to feel sorry for because they're doing quite well. But what they are doing is then just moving their mining operations to other countries. So moving it out of China, potentially to the US, to Europe, and to other places in Asia, and, and mining from there. So again, kind of similar to the Bitcoin exchanges, the market in China is shut down, but they're finding other jurisdictions where uh, the regulations and the environment is a little bit more favorable to either trading cryptocurrencies or mining cryptocurrencies. Just before we close the conversation on China, are there any new verticals on the horizon that you're seeing that is coming into fintech? Or are you just seeing that the Chinese government is now starting to place regulation into some of the current digital innovations within fintech itself? Yeah, so we've always seen the Chinese government's involvement as fintech is this wait and see approach. So, uh, you know, allowing things to grow and prosper until it gets to a point that it needs to be regulated. So we've seen that with mobile payments now and peer-to-peer -peer lending and consumer finance. And so we think that over 2018, there will be continued push by the government to regulate, sensibly regulate fintech in general. I think in terms of the development, as I mentioned before, certainly consumer finance and, and borrowing and credit are, are some of the growth areas that we've seen in 
fintech over the past year, you know, piggybacking on the growth of peer-to-peer lending platforms here in China. So that will probably still continue to grow. I think the new area that we would expect is more, more around AI and machine learning. I think, and that's in for the financial industry in general globally. I think the applications of this are quite interesting, especially in a place like China, where it's just the sheer numbers of customers make it very challenging to service every customer as well as you would like. So the application of AI within the financial industry, I think will be quite interesting. And seeing as how China is such an AI powerhouse, that this will certainly be one of the countries where we see a lot of development around that. So I think we'll we'll continue to see regulation in kind of the traditional areas that we've seen in the past here in China. So around consumer finance, peer-to-peer lending, digital payments. But at the same time, I think we'll see new use cases within some of these wallet platforms. Uh, So the way that people are able to use their WeChat wallet or their Alipay wallet to conduct their financial lives will be quite interesting over 2018, as well as AI and and kind of developments around that space. So this will be good to round the conversation, but we will come back in the next part of the conversation to talk about fintech in Asia Pacific.